This episode contains descriptions of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-11, Bosnia and the UN. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. In the spring of 1992, the Bosnian Serb army begins a vicious campaign in Bosnia. Several Bosnian cities fall to the Serbs who commit countless atrocities against the Muslim residents. Sarajevo is put under siege by Serb artillery and snipers. In the south, fighting breakouts between the Bosniaks and the Croats. And with that, let's discuss the United Nations' role in the Bosnian War. The United Nations Protection Force In June 1992, the UNPRO-4, the United Nations Protection Force, mandate was expanded to include Bosnia and Herzegovina. Originally formed to secure Croatia, UNPRO-4 was now tasked with protecting humanitarian aid and assisting in relief operations in Bosnia as well. That same month, the United Nations imposed a ceasefire that no one obeyed. The ceasefire was supposed to allow humanitarian aid flights into Sarajevo. But the Serbs kept breaking it, prompting UN Secretary General Butros Butros Ghali to impose a June 26 ultimatum. Once again, no one listened. The UN peacekeepers were practically useless during this conflict. The UN mandate was to protect civilians, but they could not get involved in the fighting between the various groups. Nonetheless, the UN wanted to prove its worth. It focused on securing Sarajevo's airport to allow humanitarian aid delivery. There was a sigh of relief when a UN force, led by Canadian General Louis Mackenzie, arrived in Sarajevo and reopened the airport. The Canadians arrived with more weapons and firepower than anything available in all of Yugoslavia. With this show of strength, it looked like the United Nations was going to make good on its promise to protect civilians. Of course, that's not what happened. The Canadians were only there to reopen the airport so the UN could bring in food. The Bosnians could eat, but they would not be safe. Mandate or no mandate, the UN peacekeepers failed to protect civilians. The Serbs had little respect for them, often launching brazen attacks right in front of them. General Louis Mackenzie Canadian General Louis Mackenzie was one of the more controversial figures in the Bosnian War. His primary fault was creating and perpetuating the idea that all sides were equally responsible for the carnage in Bosnia. He put the Bosnian Muslims, who had few weapons and depended on UN aid, on the same level as the Serbs, who had sufficient food and were well armed. 
General Mackenzie perpetuated the misleading idea that, quote, atrocities were committed on all sides, unquote. On an abstract level, yes, it is true that all sides committed atrocities. However, the scale of the murder and brutality committed by the Bosnian Serbs, which even at that time was considered genocide, is far beyond the isolated atrocities the Bosniaks committed. But General Mackenzie was the face of the UN in Sarajevo. So when he said he had evidence that both sides were shelling their own people to gain sympathy, the world believed him. This created a narrative that everyone in Bosnia was crazy and killing each other, rather than the reality that one party was the primary aggressor. In the previous episode, we mentioned how the Serbs shelled Sarajevo while people were lining up to get bread. This deliberate attack on unarmed civilians led to the death of 16 people. Serbian media reported that the Bosniaks were responsible for this attack. Most international journalists did not believe this statement. General Mackenzie not only believed it, he repeated it several times. This is not to say there weren't thugs, gangsters, and criminals among the Bosniaks, there certainly were. But these were individual actors and did not represent the Bosnian government. The Bosnian government did not use rape and genocide as a means of war. It should come as no surprise the Bosnian government was furious with General Mackenzie. Mackenzie eventually returned to Canada and received a hero's welcome. Before long, he was making the rounds on the nightly news. As the war raged on, General Mackenzie repeated the same lines to Western audiences. Don't get involved in Bosnia. It's a quagmire. They're all animals. There's nothing we can do to solve it. This distortion of the truth solidified the idea that everyone in Bosnia was equally guilty and it was best to let them sort it out themselves. In June 1993, an investigative journalist disclosed that Louis Mackenzie's speaking tour had been partially sponsored by a U.S.-based Serb advocacy group. As the war raged on, the Serbian propaganda machine used Mackenzie's words to their advantage. They accused the Bosniaks of planning the Markel massacre where nearly 70 people were killed. And they accused the Bosniaks of killing a hundred thousand of their own people to gain international sympathy. These lies persist even to this day. Boutros Boutros Ghali Egyptian native Boutros Boutros Ghali became Secretary General of the United Nations in 1992. It is not clear if there was a connection between General Mackenzie's comments and Boutros Ghali's poor leadership. But it is fair to conclude that Boutros Ghali did a terrible job during his tenure. A few things to keep in mind regarding Boutros Boutros Ghali. Even though he was Egyptian, he was not Muslim. He came from a politically influential Coptic family. He received a law degree from the University of Paris. In 1994, French President François Mitterrand awarded Boutros Ghali the Grand Cross of the Legion of Honor. Originally established by Napoleon Bonaparte himself, the Grand Cross is the highest merit award in France. In 1996, the United States pushed to remove Boutros Ghali as UN Secretary General. 
France, however, advocated on his behalf. In 1997, he became the first Secretary General of the OIF, or International Organization of La Francophonie. This is an organization that represents the French-speaking nations of the world where France, the French language, and French culture have had a significant impact. This is all to say that Boutros Boutros Ghali was a Francophile. He loved France, and he loved the French. And as we've established in the previous episodes, France, and to a lesser degree Great Britain, wanted to prevent a majority Muslim nation in Europe. When questioned about the violence in Bosnia, Boutros Boutros Ghali often shifted blame, either to the United States, or to NATO, or to the UN Security Council. Sometimes he even blamed the Bosniaks for their predicament. On December 31, 1992, Boutros Ghali made a surprise visit to Sarajevo. Bosnian Vice President Ayub Ganic met Boutros Ghali and begged him to do more. Boutros Ghali responded that the UN had passed several resolutions and had condemned the violence in Bosnia. Then he shifted responsibility to the Bosniaks. He told Ganic the Bosniaks had to negotiate with their enemy. Later that same day, a correspondent from Radio Sarajevo confronted Boutros Ghali. She told him he was responsible for every child killed and every woman raped. She went on to ask him how many people would have to die before he did something meaningful. Again, Boutros Ghali put the responsibility on the Bosniaks. I understand your suffering, he replied, but there is no solution except to talk with your enemy as we are doing all we can. Needless to say, the Bosnian government and the Bosniak people despised Boutros Boutros Ghali. The Concentration Camps Throughout the war, the Bosnian Serb forces committed multiple atrocities. Some of these atrocities have been compared to those committed by the Nazis during World War II. Where the Nazis killed thousands of people at a time in gas chambers, the Bosnian Serbs slowly killed their victims through torture and inhumane acts of degradation. As mentioned in the previous episode, the Bosnian Serb forces operated various concentration camps, which were more like torture chambers, scattered throughout the country. When the Serbs captured a city, they sent the Bosniaks to these camps. Within these camps, all sorts of gruesome activities took place. These activities were organized like sporting events, where Bosnian Serb civilians were invited to take revenge for past grievances. There are stories of brothers being forced to fight to death, fathers forced to rape their daughters, and prisoners forced to castrate their cellmates with their teeth. And as we discussed in the previous episode, the Serbs had special centers where Bosniak women were raped daily as sex slaves. Ternopolje, a prison camp in northern Bosnia, was one of the better camps. Bosniak prisoners were beaten, but usually weren't killed. Bosniak women were raped, but not always gang-raped. The situation was much worse in Omarska, just a few miles away. While Ternopolje was a concentration camp, Omarska was a death camp. 
Prisoners lay about with open, untreated wounds, waiting to die. Prisoners were killed by guns, knives, or simply beaten to death. Prisoners died from their wounds, from sicknesses, and from malnutrition. Dead prisoners were buried in mass graves or dumped into a nearby mine shaft. Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic invited journalists to visit the concentration camps in the summer of 1992. He probably wanted to prove the Serbs were not committing war crimes. If so, his plan backfired. The Serbs tried to clean up as much as possible before the journalists arrived. Wounds were cleaned and bandaged. The really sick and near-death prisoners were moved out of sight, as were the women and children. The journalists visited Omarska first. The camp guards permitted very little access. A journalist described talking to a man who was little more than a skeleton. He said the Bosniak prisoners looked like survivors from Auschwitz. One can still find footage on YouTube of imprisoned Bosniak men with their shirts off and severely malnourished. When the journalists questioned the Serb commander running the prison, he replied the prisoners were terror suspects. The Serb commander said they were being treated the same way the United States and Great Britain treated terrorists. The journalists then went on to Ternopolie, which was supposedly less cruel. While there, they took pictures of the emaciated prisoners, including a Bosniak man named Fikret Alic. The news footage was shown on British television. Fikret Alic's skeletal frame, peering into the camera from behind barbed wire, made the cover of Time magazine. The world got a glimpse at some of the horrors taking place in Bosnia. More horror stories came from Bosniaks who escaped to the concentration camps. Many of them wound up in the relative safety of Croatia where they could share their experiences. In October 1992, a United Nations report described some of the events that took place at these camps. A witness stated that a young Muslim from Kozarak, who had owned a Suzuki motorcycle, was tortured in front of the other prisoners. He was severely beaten all over his body, and his teeth were knocked out. The guards then tied one end of a wire, tightly around his testicles and tied the other end to the victim's motorcycle. The guard got on the motorcycle and sped off. A 1993 U.S. State Department dispatch reported the following story. Three days after her arrival at the prison, she went with a large number of women and other girls to fetch water from a well about 50 meters from the prison gates. Returning from the well, Ternopolye guards held back six girls, including the witness, and stopped them from re-entering the prison gates. They were joined by four more female prisoners. The guards took the ten girls to a house across the meadow. They were taken to the side yard of the house, out of sight of the roadway. Thirty Serbian soldiers, including some dressed like a tank crew, were there and they taunted the girls, calling them Turkish whores. The girls were ordered to undress or have their clothes pulled off. Three girls resisted or hesitated from their fear. Their clothes were cut off with knives. The Serbian soldiers told the naked girls to parade slowly in a circle. The men sat at the outside of the circle, smoking, drinking, calling out foul names. The witness estimates the parade lasted about 15 minutes. Three soldiers took one girl, one to rape her, while the other two held her down. A soldier approached the witness and mocked her saying he had seen her before. Though she did not recognize him, he pulled out a photo of the witness with her 19-year-old Muslim boyfriend, whom he cursed for being in the Bosnian Territorial Defense Forces. 
The man with the photograph raped her first. The witness says she fought and pulled his hair, but he bit her and hit her face. Her lips bled. He hit hard with the butt of his gun on her cheek, causing extreme pain. Another rapist ran the blade of a knife across her breasts, as if to slice the skin off, leaving bleeding scratches. After that she was raped by eight more men, before losing consciousness. Karatern was another concentration camp in the Priyodot area. One former inmate recounted his experience being locked up in a storage shed with 150 other prisoners. The guards refused to provide water even as the prisoners began fainting from thirst and exhaustion. If the prisoners asked for water, the guards shot at the doors of the shed, often killing the nearest prisoner. After three days, only a few of the prisoners were still alive. The government reports, the journalists' stories, and the survivors' tales did very little to end the violence. Other than the no-fly zone over Bosnia, the U.S., the E.C., the U.N., and NATO did almost nothing to stop the Serbs. Some may disagree with singling the Serbs out as if they were the only perpetrators. Certainly, there were times when the Bosniaks exacted retribution on the Serbs and, to a lesser extent, the Croats. The official army of Bosnia and Herzegovina had their own prisoner-of-war camps where atrocities took place. But the scale and the scope of violence committed by the Serbs dwarfs that of the Bosniaks. They cannot be justifiably compared. This is not to say all Serbs were guilty. There were instances of individual Serbs risking their lives to save or protect their Muslim friends and neighbors. Some prison guards snuck food into the prisons. There are stories of other guards claiming to have already raped a woman to prevent her from getting raped for real. There were Serbs who intervened and protected their Muslim neighbors from getting attacked. These were real instances, but they were few and far between. This begs the question, why didn't more Serbs stand up against the violence? The answer is, Milosevic's propaganda held so many of them captive. They believed him when he said the Muslims they'd known all their lives wanted to kill them and take their land and their daughters. A New Year in Bosnia As 1992 came to a close, it was clear that the Serbs were winning and the Muslims were fighting a losing battle. The Bosnian Serbs controlled nearly two-thirds of the country. Bosnian Muslim civilians were forced to leave towns the Serbs captured and sent to prison camps throughout the country. In December 1992, Serbia re-elected Slobodan Milosevic as president, ensuring the fighting would continue for a few more years. The United States had also gone through an election. Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton defeated incumbent George H.W. Bush to become the 42nd President of the United States. With questions surrounding his foreign policy credentials, the new president wanted to do something about the violence in the Balkans. The United Nations seemed incapable of doing anything about the violence. This became absurdly clear in early January when a fully armored UN convoy failed to protect a Bosnian politician. On January 8, 1993, Bosnian Serb forces stopped a UN convoy escorting Bosnia's deputy prime minister from the airport. 
Bosnian Serb tanks blocked the road while their troops pointed an anti-tank weapon at the UN vehicles. The UN soldiers, mostly from France, stopped and opened the door so the Serbs could see who was inside. The Deputy Prime Minister, Hakija Turelik, had been a wealthy and well-known Bosniak businessman before the war. With connections all over the world, he had just returned from the airport where foreign aid from Turkey had recently arrived. When the Serb soldiers saw him in the vehicle, they opened fire with an AK-47. The French UN soldiers did not return fire. They did not call for backup. They did not try to detain the attackers. They did rush Hakia to a nearby UN building, but by then, he was already dead. More Plans and Resolutions In early 1993, former U.S. Secretary of State Cyrus Vance teamed up with former British Foreign Secretary David Owen to come up with a new peace plan for the Balkans. The Vance-Owens plan, as it was called, proposed establishing Bosnia and Herzegovina as a decentralized nation made up of several autonomous provinces. A few months later, the Vance-Owens peace plan was put to a vote and rejected by the Bosnian Serbs. They were in a strong position and felt they could negotiate something better. Western liberals also attacked the plan, saying it benefited the Bosnian Serbs who were the aggressors. The White House officially supported the plan, but made it clear the United States would not do anything to force it into action. Meanwhile, the UN passed a flurry of resolutions throughout the first half of 1993, hoping to force the Serbs to the negotiating table. In February 1993, United Nations Security Council Resolution 808 declared that an international tribunal was to be established to prosecute anyone guilty of crimes against humanity in the Balkans. In March 1993, UNSC Resolution 816 called for the enforcement of the no-fly zone that had already been passed and reiterated on several occasions. Twelve days later, NATO warplanes began Operation Deny Flight to comply with the resolution. The following month, Resolution 836 created safe areas throughout Bosnia around Sarajevo, Gorazde, Srebrenica, Tuzla, Jepa, and Bihać. Two weeks later, Resolution 827 established the ICTY, or the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. In June 1993, Resolution 836 authorized UNPRO-4 to use force to protect the safe zones established in Resolution 816. Later that month, NATO and the Western European Union began Operation Sharp Guard, a naval blockade in the Adriatic Sea to support the UN arms embargo. None of these resolutions and declarations did anything to stop the violence in Bosnia. Most of the violence was being perpetrated by one side and they had no incentive nor reason to stop. Parts of the United States government attempted to get the embargo removed using a policy called lift and strike. President Bill Clinton suggested lifting the arms embargo long enough to get weapons to the Bosniaks. If the Serbs tried to stop this, the U.S. would launch airstrikes against them. But this was never a serious consideration. President Clinton did not want to upset his European allies, particularly France and the UK. 
so he did not push back when they rejected the lift-and-strike idea. When the United States Congress passed a resolution demanding the embargo be lifted, President Clinton vetoed it. Not just once. Bill Clinton vetoed two congressional resolutions to lift the arms embargo. It was Clinton's first year in office. Perhaps he was more concerned about upsetting the Europeans than he was about the Muslims getting slaughtered in Bosnia. The hypocrisy of the Europeans, the United Nations, and the U.S. was on full display throughout the Bosnian War. They chose to treat the Bosnian Muslims, who were barely armed and relied on black market weapons, and the Bosnian Serbs, who were backed by the full might of the Yugoslav military, as equals. And as we learned in the previous episode, the Europeans did this for one reason and one reason only. Because the Bosniaks were Muslim. The Lashva Valley Campaign The Lashva River is located in central Bosnia and flows into the Bosna River. The path created by the Lashva River is called the Lashva Valley. Both the valley and the river are fairly small. The river is barely 20 feet across in some places, and the valley is only 11 miles long. There are several villages located within the valley and a few towns. One of these municipalities is Jepshi, with about 22,000 residents and one of the larger towns in the valley. Other towns include Vitez, with about 6,000 residents, and Amici, with about 1,000 residents. Before the war, anyone visiting these villages would perhaps describe them as cozy. Hidden in the crevices of Bosnia's green, wooded mountains, these villages were very simple. Some of the towns and villages had a slight Muslim majority, and some had a slight Croat majority. In the spring of 1993, with the help of the Croatian military, the Bosnian-Croatian armed forces launched a campaign to cleanse Lashva Valley of all Muslims. In April 1993, fierce fighting broke out between the Bosniak Defense Forces and the HVO. Despite fighting two enemies, both of whom were better armed and supplied, the Muslim Bosniaks successfully defended much of Lashva Valley. In fact, against all odds, the Bosniaks actually gained territory. They pushed out from their stronghold in Janitsa, a large city in the Bosna River Valley, and moved on Croat-held territory in the southwest. After capturing the hills overlooking Vitez and taking Travnik from the Croats, the Bosniaks were poised to move on Vitez itself. But they were spread too thin. The government forces did not have the manpower and equipment to continue the offensive and protect every village in the valley. One of those villages they could not defend was Amici. Located in the Vitez municipality of the Lashva Valley, Amici was a small town with just over a thousand residents. On April 16, 1993, Croatian forces attacked Amici. By this time, most of the village residents had already fled the fighting. Those that remained were those who could not leave, the elderly and the very poor. The Croats destroyed the entire city. They went house to house, setting them on fire. They destroyed all the mosques in the city, usually with explosives, but also with fire when necessary. They even shot and killed most of the village's cows and pets. 
and they killed over a hundred unarmed Muslim civilians. An entire family, mother, father, and two children were found in a cellar, burned to death. Burned bodies were not just found in cellars. The smoldering, blackened corpses of men, women, and children lay strewn in front of houses and throughout the village streets. When word of this massacre got out, the Bosniak army negotiated a ceasefire. Amici was not the only city the Croats destroyed. No matter how many battles the Muslims won, they could not defend the entire valley. Reluctantly, the Bosniaks agreed to pull their forces back from the hills and retreat to Jenica. A few months later, in July 1993, Serbs and Croats united in an invasion of Jepshi, perhaps the largest town in the Lashva Valley. At around 60%, Muslims were the majority in Jepshi. But at 26%, the Croats were a significant minority, making Jepshi a prime target for the Croatian nationalists. The Muslim Bosniak defenders of Jepshi, like most of the Bosniak forces at this time, were mostly armed with rifles and small arms. These were useless against the tanks and armored vehicles the Serbs contributed to the assault. Reluctantly, the Muslim forces surrendered, leaving the town's inhabitants at the mercy of the invaders. Nearly 5,000 Bosniak soldiers were taken captive. Thousands of Muslims fled Jebshi, many of them heading for Janitsa, 20 miles south. With this victory, the Croatian forces pushed deeper into the Lashva Valley. Though the Croats made several attempts to take Janitsa, the city remained in government hands throughout the war. In the next episode, we'll discuss NATO's role in the war. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season one of the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 1-11. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Banu Tamim was the dominant Arab tribe in the city of Merv, the capital of the province of Khorasan. The Tamim were divided into factions because of a dispute between two powerful men, Bahir and Bukir. 
To bring unity to Khorasan, Caliph Abdul Malik appointed a Qurayshi named Umayyah ibn Abdullah as the governor of Khorasan. Nonetheless, the bad blood between Bahir and Bukir persisted, threatening to engulf Khorasan into open warfare. And with that, let's discuss the chaos in Khorasan. Now, Khorasan at the time was the frontier of the Muslim Caliphate, which is basically the Umayyad domain. And much of this we've already discussed in episode 2 of this series. Khorasan, you could basically describe it as Central Asia because it included parts of Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Afghanistan, even Kazakhstan. Merv was the capital of the province of Khorasan, and Merv is today located in modern Turkmenistan. Khorasan was still mostly pagan, but it had a minority population of Arab Muslims serving as their rulers and governors. During the time of Ibn Zubair, Khorasan was under his governor, Ibn Khazim. After Ibn Zubair's authority fell apart, and Khorasan was shifting away from Ibn Zubair and towards the Umayyads, there was a conflict in Khorasan between Bukir, who was the governor of Khorasan under the Umayyads, and a soldier named Bahir. We won't get into the details of this conflict, but it ultimately ended with Bukir imprisoning Bahir. Now this conflict between these two men who by the way were from the same tribe they were both from Banu Tamim this created a conflict a split a factioning off within Banu Tamim and Banu Tamim as we mentioned in the introduction was the dominant tribe in Merv the dominant Arab tribe in Merv the Arabs were still a minority in Khorasan some Tamim supported Bukir while some supported Bahir so with this threat of uh, civil war or internecine warfare within Khorasan coming up, Abdul Malik decided to appoint a Qureshi as the governor to, to sort of take away the power of the Tamim and also put someone who was supposedly impartial as the governor that all the people could respect. And the man he chose for this job was Umayyah ibn Abdullah. Again, all of this was discussed in episode 2 of this series. When Bukir learned that he was being replaced by Umayyah ibn Abdullah, he freed Bahir and tried to make amends with Bahir. But Bahir, once he became free, he went and started working against Bukir by whispering, some things were truthful, but by whispering things into the new governor's ear about Bukir and accusing Bukir of accumulating wealth wrongfully and doing other things. So Umayyah ibn Abdullah, he becomes the governor of Khorasan, and he's aware of this conflict between Bahir and Bukir, and he offers to make Bukir governor of Tukhodistan, which is in northern Afghanistan. So Bukir accepts his offer. It is, a, it is a lower position because he'll be under Umayyah, but he will still have his own authority. And as we mentioned before, being a governor of any territory can be very lucrative. 
So Bukert, he begins to spend his money. He begins to borrow money in preparation for this move to Afghanistan. So remember, he's moving from Turkmenistan to Afghanistan. This is a pretty long move, especially in the day of cart and horse. But as he's preparing and he's spending all this money, Bahir goes to the governor, Umayyah ibn Abdullah, and convinces him to change his mind about appointing Bukir as the governor of Tukhadistan. 